1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Sorry, I'm pregnant and super out of breath right now. <laughs> so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Well, if you're not there already, turn to 1 John chapter 5. So we've been going through this book um, for a couple of months, and so we will finish today on this last Sunday of the year, be in Psalm 90 next week, and then Genesis the, the week after that. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do uh, thank you again for this uh, wonderful day, this Christmas day. Uh, thank you that, that we have the opportunity to gather in your name um, that the school was able to open the doors to us um, on this day, and um, and so we're we're grateful for that that we can worship together as as a family. And so, 
I pray that you would uh, open our eyes and minds uh, and our hearts to what you have to show us uh, and teach us from your holy word this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is one of the most incredible claims that has been made in all of history, whether you believe it or not. So much so, if you've noticed, we've designed our calendars around this great event that we celebrate today, Christmas Day. And when someone makes a claim uh, this magnificent and this big, there always are doubters and dissenters. So one such dissenter was uh, a second century Greek philosopher named Celsus. Celsus did not believe in Jesus, did not believe in Christianity. So Celsus accuses Jesus of having invented his birth from a virgin and chides him with being, quote, born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country who gained her substance by spinning and who was turned out of doors by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery. That after being driven away by her husband and wandering about for a time, she disgracefully, disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child, who having hired himself out as a servant in Egypt on account of his poverty and having there acquired some miraculous powers on which the Egyptians greatly pride themselves, returned to his own country, highly elated on account of them, and by means of these proclaimed himself a god. Well, with such dissenting, and unfortunately some still believe that sort of thing today, it's always good to have reliable testimonies to look at. So filters to determine what is true and what is not true. And this is something John has been really good at in his gospels and his gospel writings, but also in his letters to the churches. And some of those testimonies are found in this final chapter of John's letter. These three faithful testimonies that we'll look at this morning in turn. So the first is the testimony of the new birth. The second is the testimony of the Trinity. And the third is the testimony of the church. So the new birth, the Trinity, and the church. So first, the testimony of the new birth. In verses 1 through 5, John goes back into his letter and he rehearses these last three tests that he has given the readers in chapter 3 and chapter 4, which includes, and we know this because we looked at this, the test of obedience or the test of faithfulness, uh, the test of love, and third, the test of belief. And the reason he brings them all together here in chapter 5 is to show the essential unity of all three of these tests together. They are not random or nonsensical, but they are closely woven into a single coherent fabric to give his readers the assurance they need in their particular moment. Because if you remember, they are being engulfed with false teaching from false teachers, or as John likes to call them, antichrist. And these three tests, the test of faithfulness, obedience, and, uh, and love, these three tests run contrary to what these false teachers are claiming to know. 
So these false teachers, remember, hold to a sort of philosophy known as Gnosticism. So they are Gnostics. And they believe that they have ascended to some sort of new knowledge, that they have attained some new knowledge outside of what's already been given by God, that they've been lifted to this new level of enlightenment, and they know more than those who call themselves Christians. So to a Gnostic, they believe Jesus was not incarnate God in the flesh. Everything that we've been singing about this morning, they did not believe that. Because to do so is to enter an earthly body, and an earthly body, as everybody knows, is evil and corrupt, and therefore, why would God enter into an evil and corrupt body? Pastor Tim Keller wrote a little article on Gnosticism, but he said this, he said, the teachings of the Gnostics Jesus flatly contradicts the Jesus of the Bible. The Gnostic Jesus says... When you come to know yourselves, you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty. This reflects the Gnostic concept that self-consciousness of one's own divinity, rather than a new awareness of sinfulness and need, is the first step to salvation. The Gnostic Jesus also says, When you disrobe yourselves and are not ashamed and take your garments and lay them beneath your feet like little children and tread upon them, then shall you see the Son of the living one, and you shall not fear. This sort of saying urges a person to trample underfoot and despise the physical nature. So to despise the physical nature, as these teachers were doing, is to despise the incarnation, God coming in the flesh, And to despise the incarnation is to despise the new birth that comes because of the incarnation. If there is no incarnation, there is no new birth. So John presses in on this again to show his readers how vital it is to hold to the incarnation of God. And the reason it's so vital is because it's central to what Christians call the new birth, or as you might have heard it before, being born again. So notice the bookends for verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1. John says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the first bookend. In verse 5 he says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John begins this part of his letter uh, with, with the new birth, and he ends this part of his letter with the new birth, and then sandwiched in between that is the incarnation. So a birth that only happens through Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God. And this also is the link, the real link between the three tests that I mentioned earlier. Because faithfulness, Love and belief are the natural growth which follows a new birth from above. So these three things give testimony to our own new birth, but also give testimony to the truth, reality, and relevancy of the person and work of Christ. And right alongside the testimony of our new birth is the second testimony of this text, which is the testimony of the Trinity in verses 6 through 15. 
So when you, uh, some of you may be picking this up in the new year, you're going to say, hey, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. I failed last year, um, come February, um, but I'm going to try it again in, uh, in Jan- on January 1. Um, and one thing that I want you to look out for when you are beginning to read your Bible in that way is that if you look carefully when you're reading the scriptures, you will, you will begin to notice that from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the, the Holy Spirit have constantly been at work in this world. You're not going to see the word Trinity, but you are going to see the physical presence of the Trinity in the scriptures. And, and the Trinity, its, its primary work is giving, giving the testimony of the gospel. That is it, its primary work, proclaiming the gospel, protecting the gospel, and pushing the gospel forward. So the Trinity, in all of its work, in all of its work, even the work in your own life personally, is pointing to Jesus. And John shows us each person of the Trinity in verses 6 to 15 and how this works. So the first person of the Trinity that he points to is the Son in verse 6. So very clearly, John points us to Jesus here because this is what is under the most direct attack in the church and will constantly be under the most direct attack wherever you are. So the opponents that these readers are dealing with were once members of their church. Some of them are still kind of uh, lurking about and trying to influence these members, but these once members have moved away from a biblical Christology, a biblical understanding of who Christ is. So Jesus to them is no longer God the Son in the flesh, because their system of belief taught that the spiritual is in no way connected to the physical because the physical was evil and corrupt. So logically to them, according to their belief system, Jesus could only be a man endowed with the goodness of Christ, but not truly God. So this denial taught that a true incarnation meant that Jesus did not actually suffer on the cross. And if he did not actually suffer on the cross, he most definitely did not rise from the dead. So John makes sure at the end of his letter here to go right for the jugular of this false belief system with clear evidence, albeit using the unusual wording we find in verse 8. Look there with me, because John begins to talk about the water and the blood. So most New Testament scholars agree that this is one of the most perplexing phrases in all of the New Testament, and I'm about to clear all of that up for you right now. So I think it's because I think it's prudent for us to take a few moments to understand why this is perplexing, okay? So there's three principal suggestions to the meaning of this phrase that you will hear if you ever dove in deep on this. The first suggestion is that these words are referring to the sacraments of the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I wish it was that easy, and that would be a great way, a great thing to have in the arsenal um, to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. But while this could be really, really helpful, it doesn't contextually work with any of John's letters 
or with John's gospel, and especially not with 1 John. So the second suggestion is that these words are referring to the spear thrust into Jesus' side at his crucifixion, which does show up in John's gospel. So if you remember that, when he was stuck with the spear, water and blood flowed from his side. So some believe that is what John is talking about here. And, And while it's a fair possibility, considering it does show up in the context of John's gospel, we would have to force it to make it work in 1 John. So the third suggestion is the most plausible as it makes the most sense contextually, not only in 1 John, but throughout the gospel of John as well, uh, because it's an argument concerning the incarnation, once again. The water is representing Jesus' baptism that you can see, you can read about in Matthew chapter 3, where he is declared the Son and also commissioned and empowered for his work to begin. Where once again in Matthew chapter 3, in the gospel account of Jesus' baptism, the physical presence of the Trinity is present, making clear who Jesus is. So if you remember this This moment in the gospel writings, the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, um, and the father speaks over Jesus at the same time, saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So that's the water, representing Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his ministry. The blood represents his death in which his work on earth is finished. So this this explanation makes the most sense given the context. The church is dealing with a level of heresy that did not believe God the Son came in the flesh, but was only merely man, which also taught that Christ descended upon uh, uh, that Christ descended upon uh, during baptism, and from whom Christ departed before the cross. So they saw Jesus. They saw Jesus as a real man, a man like me just normal, every day, and that God specially anointed him at baptism, but removed that anointing uh, before going to the cross. He was just going to die as a man. So, it, so John uses this to, to refute this fundamental error that these false teachers were bringing into the church, knowing that Jesus was the Christ before and during the baptism, And during and after the cross, he described him as the one who came through water and blood. The one who came through baptism and death. And then for extra emphasis, John purposefully adds this, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So John is very purposeful in the use of language here because he wants that point to be made that Jesus Christ was one person who at the same time from his birth to this death and forevermore is both the man Jesus and at the very same time the Christ of God. So the first testimony is there. The second testimony, the second witness uh, of the Trinity is the Spirit. As if the testimony of Jesus' life and death is not enough, John brings in this second witness that we know of as the Holy Spirit. 
Now, bringing the Holy Spirit into the discussion is not unusual for John. This was sort of what he did. He has already spoken of the Spirit in chapter 4, verse 2, saying the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and is the only Spirit, the only Spirit that testifies to Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. So our New City Catechism, question 37, gives us a solid summary on how the Holy Spirit helps us as believers. It says, quote, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts and the desire to obey God, and he enables us to pray and understand God's word. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, continually brings the spiritual reality and the physical reality together in our world. So he's not some ethereal being that is just kind of floating out in space, and, or he's like our guardian angel, or he lands upon our shoulders telling us what to do, what the right thing to do is, but one that actually enters into the everyday realities of our world and in our life, testifying not about how good you are, but testifying to the gospel of God in Christ. That is the Holy Spirit's job, and that is what he does. So another brilliant move by John comes through his understanding of Jewish law. So in, in, during this time, in order for a testimony to stand in court, to even be heard in court, you had to have at least two witnesses whose testimony agreed. So, so John literally goes one step forward by not only having two witnesses here, the water and the blood, so that's two and one there, but bringing a third in as well through the Holy Spirit. And he tells us this in verse 8, he says, these three agree. All three of these are giving testimony to the same thing, which is the gospel of Jesus is true and real. John Calvin wrote of John's mention of the Spirit here. He writes, he it is who seals our heart's testimony of the water and the blood, the Spirit. So thirdly, the third person of the Trinity, the Father, in verses 9 through 12. So here in these verses, John boldly writes concerning the third member of the Trinity, who we know as God the Father. And any testimony that you have received from a human being, John's, John is saying, any testimony that you have received from any human being, no matter how much you respect them or whatever it might be, concerning the incarnation of Jesus, John says... God's testimony is greater, always. He is the key witness. On his testimony, does all of this rise and fall? And the pattern of God's word teaches us that the Father is always for the Son, and the Son is always for the Father. So again, at Jesus' baptism, the Father says, You are my beloved Son, speaking to Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So the Father's testimony here declares two things to us. One, that he, God, the Father, gave us eternal life. And secondly, this eternal life that he has given to us is only found in his son, Jesus. If you falter here, 
you falter everywhere else. Because what you end up with is if, if you falter here about uh, uh, the Father's testimony concerning Jesus, what you end up with is a religion gutted of the truth that is only set up to serve yourself. So there are only two paths diverging from this truth. One path is the narrow road that leads to life. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The other path is the wide road that leads to destruction. So one path that leads to life and one path that leads to destruction. And you are on one or the other right now. Whether you believe anything that is coming out of my mouth or not, the truth is you are on one of the other paths. Which one are you on? Which one are you treading upon? Are you moving toward Jesus or are you moving away from Jesus? So we have the testimony of the new birth. We have the testimony of the Trinity. And finally, we see we have the testimony of the church in verses 13 through 21. So this has been something John has continually talked about uh, throughout his letter, uh, asking the question, how are our lives as the church a reflection of the grace and mercy of God in Christ? How do our, how do our lives, uh, life together, how does our life together reflect the gospel? Because the gospel doesn't make sense or, or can't be true if it doesn't meet us in the real and every day. And it's in this, because it's in this real and every day, real world that we live, right? It's where the gospel is proving itself to be true in our own lives. And it does this in a couple of ways, John talks about here in these last verses, is through prayer and through brokenness. This is how the gospel is proving itself to us. So first, through prayer, John says in verse 14 that we prove our confidence towards God and God proves himself faithful to us in that he hears us and answers us according to his will. So this means that we don't use God like a genie who is waiting to grant our three wishes. Rather, it's making our request known to him and trusting that his will is better even when, or I would even say, especially when we receive an answer that's not what we were praying for specifically. How often have we prayed for something, not gotten what we prayed for, and been disappointed? So let's use the logic of the Bible here. If we know that God loves us, and John tells us continually, God is love, it is the essence of who he is, and that he hears us, and we know that throughout the Bible, that God hears our prayers, then we know when we get an answer that may not be what we are praying for, we know that we are getting something that we need, not necessarily something that we want. So if you are suffering right now and getting no relief or, or feeling like you are getting no relief, it's an opportunity that God has given to you to lean more heavily into the arms of your heavenly Father knowing that he loves you deeply and his desire is to make you more like Christ, not necessarily to make you happy all the time, 
that he has your ultimate good in mind, not just the temporary reality that you might be wrestling with, which doesn't always translate into good health, a new car, relief from your sufferings. Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher in London, he was known as the Prince of Preachers, but he was a man who suffered immensely throughout his life with deep, dark depression. And this was a time uh, before there was, uh, you know, uh, depression medication that he could take to relieve himself of of some of this darkness. Um, This was a time when none of that was available to him. And he writes this uh, in, in a sermon that he preached in 1873. He says, as long as I trace my pain to accident, my bereavement to mistake, my loss to another's wrong, my discomfort to an enemy, and so on, I am of the earth, earthy, and shall break my teeth with gravel stones. But when I rise to my God and see his hand at work, I grow calm. I have not a word of repining. So right here at the end of John's letter, you'll notice that John doesn't finish up with some sappy salutations. He kind of ends abruptly. But he ends in verses 18 through 21 with this next bit about sin and idolatry to remind his readers and to remind us of our own limitations as human beings, our brokenness. Because the limitations of the physical give greater relevance to the spiritual. I mean, this, this is why we celebrate Christmas, because we could not save ourselves. We were weak, we are broken, we cannot save ourselves. So God enters in and sends us his son. We are limited, we are broken. John Calvin says this in his Institutes, God's truth requires us to look for something different when we think about ourselves. Namely, a knowledge which banishes our arrogant belief in our own strength and which removes every excuse for vainglory, leading us instead to humility. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 12.10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the answers you may be seeking after right now in prayer, the anxieties and worries that consume your mind and heart will never be satisfied in your flesh. You will constantly toil until you can recognize your limitations, your brokenness. St. Augustine aptly said, famous quote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. All of this, all of us know from experience that sin and idolatry continue to be a a concrete force to be reckoned with, even as believers, besetting sins that we constantly find ourselves fighting and falling into, addictive behaviors, uh, debilitating habits continually uh, continue to nip us on a daily basis, whether this be unintentionally or intentionally. So John owns this. He presses the church to see sin's reality 
And this reminded me of Joshua's deathbed words to God's people in Joshua 24. He says to them, incline your heart to the Lord. Because this is the only way in which you will stay faithful. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, but a constant inclining your heart to God. Together confronting sin and idolatry in our lives by reminding each other of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the everyday. So as the church, the only way to continue to give testimony that Christ is our life amidst opposition, amidst uh, persecution, amidst scandal maybe, is keeping the real Jesus central to all that we are and all that we proclaim. Because our life together as a church is where this all rises and falls. And so, beloved, little children, let us run this race together that God has set before us with faithfulness, joy, unity, and most importantly, the divine love of the Father in Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, it is to you that we praise this day. Christ, the newborn King of this world and the King of our hearts. Help us, O Christ, to make your kingdom known in this world that so desperately needs to know this, to be an ongoing witness to the truth reality, and relevancy of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.